you can start, go ahead and get your Bibles open. Go ahead and go to 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. And then also we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 for uh, just a minute there, 724. Uh, as we get going, I just want to say happy Father's Day to everybody. And specifically, al uh, tío mío, feliz día de los padres. Me alegra mucho que tú estás con nosotros. My uncle Tuti is here from Puerto Rico. He's visiting, and I'm so glad that he is here, and he is uh, making it a point to correct my Spanish every other sentence, and so I've uh, paid him back by taking him to the zoo when it's 100 degrees outside. <laughs> I love him. I love him. But we're going to be in, uh, in God's Word this morning, and uh, uh, we're going to be starting a new series today that we just simply titled Binge. And I know that, that the idea of binging is familiar to you if you have Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu. Who has binged anything in the last few months, in the last week? Come on. Come on, right? Like, Jeff is like, me, right? Listen, it's what we do, right? But here's what I want to encourage us to do over these next five weeks is to spend some time intentionally binging on God's Word, all right? And so what we're going to do over these next five weeks or so is is simply walk through different genres or different uh, types of writing in the scriptures and encouraging us, encouraging us as a church family to be intentional about binging God's word, right? That you can, you can do that. You can do that in a day. You can do that in a week. What if we did it over the next five weeks? What will God do in us, right, by, by reading his word consistently and in large measure? Amen? Amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in, in those two passages and uh, I'll start like this, that the, the Bible changed my life. The Bible changed my life because it revealed Jesus to me. When I was uh, um, 16 years old, I, I was sent from New York to Nebraska because I got into a lot of trouble for making poor choices. And, and just by God's grace, instead of going to jail, the judge sent me to Boys Town right here in, in Omaha, Nebraska. And, and it was here where I met Jesus because six months after I got here, my younger brother arrived. And my younger brother uh, landed in a home with two Christian people, with a man and a woman who loved Jesus and were consistently telling him about Jesus. And then my brother started coming over to my house, my, the place where I was, and started telling me about Jesus over and over and over again for a period of about three months. And it was infuriating, right? And, and so I asked him to stop, and he said this. He grabbed my Bible. When you go to Boys Town, they give you a Bible. And uh, he took my Bible and said, if you don't believe me, read it for yourself and threw it on my bed. And he walked out of the house, all mad, all mad. And so over the next couple of days, I started reading, uh, and, and I was, in, I was in, in 2 Corinthians for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why, but I was in 2 Corinthians, and I read this passage that said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, Right? And for me, I knew my brother intimately. I knew that if people would have labeled me a thug when I was in New York, they would have labeled my brother super thug. Okay? He was that guy that if the sun is in your eyes and you're squinting, and he sees you squinting, he's like, who you looking at? You know, he was that guy, right? He was that, and then he's like skinny and little, so he has something to prove, you know, and all that. You know? So, happy Father's Day. <laughs> So, 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 so Jesus changed my brother. He was still him, but there was a qualitative difference in him, and, and I desperately wanted what he had. 
he suddenly had this confidence in where he stood with God. He suddenly did not have this sense of isolation that I deeply felt. I felt disconnected and isolated no matter where I was. I could be in a room full of people. I always felt that way. You guys with me? And then suddenly I felt like this connection, like God knows me. He loves me. He sees me. And because of Jesus, he is pleased with me. I can be a brand new creation too. And so I, I gave my life to him. I remember right there in my bed, I was reading. I was reading. I put my, my Bible on my chest and I said, God, I want what my brother has. And if it's having Jesus, that's what I want. And my, my life radically changed from that moment forward. I, I would not stop putting the Bible down. I just kept on reading it and reading it and reading it. And, and, and he just continually to, to continue to change my life through the reading of his word. And the reason why is because I've encountered the real Jesus in the scriptures. I'm, I'm going to be clear on this. The real Jesus, not the cultural Jesus. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency of turning Jesus into whoever I want him to be. Right? Three of us. I, I can turn Jesus into my homeboy. He's my friend, but he's not fierce. I can turn him into a distant relative who I love, but I don't think about him too often. And he doesn't really impact my life on a day-to-day. I can turn Jesus into a political activist who is the champion of whatever cause I feel strongly about at the given moment. I can turn Jesus into whatever I want. But when I spend time in his word, he just simply won't let me. He, he, he won't let me. See, God, God's word revealed to me Jesus who changed me, who made me new into a new creation. Jesus who fulfilled God's promises. In, in 1 Corinthians it says that, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Is that good news? All of them. Jesus, who washes me of the stain on my soul, but also invites me to be with him, and so much more. Jesus, who conquered the foe that I could not. Jesus, who's compassionate, yet mighty. Jesus, who is bold, yet humble. Jesus, who is my king, yet came as a peasant. Jesus, that I needed when I was 17 years old and the Jesus that I need today as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, and as a friend. And so as I read God's word, he continues to change me even today. And so we're going to go ahead and, and start in, in, in Jesus, using Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 7, go to verse 24, and Jesus tells a, a, a parable, and this is the parable, Matthew 7, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell. And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is God's word. So this, 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 this little story that Jesus tells is, is from a sermon that he preached known as the Sermon on the Mount. Over, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus is preaching with, with incredible uh, authority and clarity, and his followers flocked to him. Jesus, wherever Jesus went, 
literally thousands of people pressed in to hear from him because they didn't know what he was going to say next or what he was going to do next. And he spoke with incredible clarity and theological conviction, but also in a very practical and personable, personal way. You guys with me here? And Jesus was his master teacher, and he would say things like this during this sermon. You have heard it said, but I say, right? Somebody with authority says that, right? You have heard it said, but I say, and he proceeded to teach on things like anxiety, relationships, self-righteousness, anger, lust, forgiveness, and even prayer. Any of those relevant in your life? Right? And Jesus would teach on these things, right? And, uh, and toward, this is the sermon where we get the golden rule, you know, do to others what you would have them do to you. Some of you didn't know that was Jesus, right? You're welcome. Right? So, that's why I make the big bucks. No. Stop. In this sermon, Jesus is a master teacher, and he starts to tell a, a, a parable. And a parable is just simply a, a, a simple story that communicates a deep truth. That's what a parable is. Simple story telling a deep truth. And what's the deep truth in this parable? He says that you're, that what, he's asking the question, what's the foundation of your life? Every life has a foundation. And what you build your life on will determine whether or not, whether it stands or falls, not if, but when the rains and winds come. You tracking? Right? So he says, what, what's your life built on? Is it rock or is it sand? All of us have a foundation. The question is, what is it? He says that building your life will either be like one or the other, that you will either be wise or you will be foolish. He says that building your life on his words is like building on rock. And that building your life on sand is not only foolish, but dangerous. You track what he said? He says the house fell and great was the fall of it. Right? And, and, and so what's the big idea here? The big idea is that hearing and obeying Jesus is a big deal. That hearing and obeying Jesus is a big deal. So what's the primary source or resource that we have to hear from Jesus, to hear from God? It is, there you go, Ma. She's with me here. It is the, there you go. There you go. She's got my back right there. It is the Bible. It is God's word. And so over these next few minutes, what I want to do is, is, is I want us to just simply answer three questions. What is the Bible? Can you trust the Bible? And how do you read the Bible for life change? Okay, yeah. So what is the Bible? Can you trust the Bible? And how do you read the Bible for life change? My hope is that this would be intensely practical. That you wouldn't walk out of here with warm fuzzies, but that you would walk out of here with practical tools to be able to apply today to be able to be in God's word and experience the life change that he has for you. Amen? Amen? So, so here's what we're going to do. Go ahead and go to 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17. And, and as, you're, as you're getting there, I want, I want to say this, that every human being, we have this insatiable appetite for knowledge, this insatiable hunger for knowledge. Like, we, we just want to know stuff continually, and we can continually. We have differing degrees or capacity for, for knowledge or retaining information, right? 
Some of us do the age or do the uh, physical or cognitive ability, right? But all of us are born with some degree of just a hunger and a desire for knowledge, to know stuff. You guys tracking with me? To know stuff. And that desire to know stuff is innate. You are wired that way. You are born that way. It is the way God made you. The knowledge itself is not innate. It doesn't come from inside of you. It is all derived, meaning that it all comes from outside of you. It either comes from something or someone that gives you that information, and then you have it. You guys with me? All right? So, so where do we get, where do we get um, a knowledge of God about God? We get it from the scriptures. We get it from the scriptures because the Bible is the knowledge of God, the knowledge from God, the knowledge about God. You guys with me? Right? Right? And so here's, here's how Dallas Willard says, theologian Dallas Willard, who wrote many books, he says, that God creates, he rules, and he redeems by his word. Means that God's word is powerful. That God's word is powerful. That, did you know that the scripture says that God creates by his word? When you open up the first pages of scripture, that God says, let there be light, and then there's light, right? Listen, you know, like, I'm a dad, right? And sometimes dads think because we say something, it's going to happen, right? You think that before you have kids, and then you have kids and realize that is not true. That is not true. But God... He says, and it is, he says, let there be planets, and boom, there are planets. There are planets everywhere, right? He says, let there be light, let there be life, and it is. And so God's word is powerful, and he reveals himself through his word, through his word. It's not the only way he reveals himself, but it is the primary way that he reveals himself. And did you know that even in, re in revealing himself, as um, he reveals himself as the word in John chapter 1, speaking about Jesus, it says that, that, that in the beginning was the word. Beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, meaning that Jesus is God's word. Isn't that awesome? Right? And so ultimately, ultimately, the scriptures are God's self-disclosure, that it is God revealing himself to his people. That's what the scriptures are. So let's go ahead and jump into 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says this. It says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good word, good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable. All scripture is helpful for reproofing, correcting, and training us. So what is all of scripture? What is all of scripture? The Christian Bible consists of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in, in the New, right? And it was written over the period of about 1,000 years by roughly 40 or so um, different authors, right? And when I say all of Scripture, and when Paul, the writer of this letter, says all of Scripture, he is talking about those Scriptures. With me so far? And then if you're like me, you're asking the question, wait a minute. If he's writing that, is that included in Scripture? And that's in Scripture. Anybody else get confused when they see stuff like that? 
right? Okay, so in 2 Timothy, one of Jesus' uh, um, uh, disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends, so there were 12 disciples, and of those 12, three were closest to Jesus. It was uh, Peter, James, and John. And Peter, one of his closest disciples, right? This is St. Peter, right? One of his closest disciples said that Paul's writings are scripture, right? So this is scripture. Another thing that he says that's super encouraging to me, he says that some of the things that Paul says in scripture is hard to understand. Whew. Right? You ever read the Bible and you're like, I don't know. Right? That happens to me on the daily. And I do this for a living, right? Like, <laughs> right? So that's encouraging to me, right? Not only is it scripture, but even scripture says that sometimes scripture can be hard to understand. That is good. So when I say scripture, that's what I mean. All of the Bible, all Old Testament and New Testament, right? And it is the means by which God actually reveals himself. That it is not only revealed, it's not only revealed by God, it reveals God himself. That all of scripture is ultimately God disclosing himself to his people and pointing forward to his redemption of his people. Right? That all of scripture ultimately points to the redemption of God's creation. Right? And, and, and is God's redemption of all his, of his, all his creation in and through Jesus Christ. That if we read the scriptures as if they are a manual of do's and don'ts, we're going to be incredibly disappointed, frustrated. We're going to be filled with pride and great arrogance when we're killing it. And we're going to be filled with great despair and depression when we're not. Right? But the scriptures, while they do have principles for living, um, different things like truisms in the Proverbs or just wise um, standards for living, that if you want to live life the way that it is intended to be, the way that it is intended for it to function, read the scriptures and apply what it says, and generally speaking, you will have a better, fuller life simply by applying the principles in this text. You guys tracking? But ultimately, that is not the main plot and main goal of scripture. The scripture's main motive and thrust is to reveal God and his saving work. And Jesus says in Luke 24, as well as in John chapter 5, He's talking to Pharisees in John chapter 5. These are Bible experts, right? Bible experts. And he says, you study the scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you'll find life. Yet it is they, the scriptures, that testify about me, Jesus. You guys track that? You study the Bible thinking that you're going to find life in them, yet they talk about me, Jesus. And he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What? So ultimately, the scriptures are talking about Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus, after he died, he rose again, but his disciples, uh, um, uh, they met him, and they were talking about it. Two of his disciples had not seen him. They're walking away to a town called Emmaus, and Jesus meets them on the road and walks seven miles with them to the, to the town of Emmaus. And on the way, he's unpacking for them how all of the scriptures, beginning with the pro Moses and the prophets and all the law, that's essentially the whole Old Testament, are ultimately about him, about Jesus. You with me here? So what is the Bible? The Bible is God's self-disclosure and revealing himself and revealing how he has redeemed all of humanity, all of creation, and it is ultimately about Jesus. You guys with me here? 
So now if you walk out of here, you'll at least know this is what the Bible is. It is the revelation of God, about God, from God. It is ultimately about Jesus. Let's keep moving here. Uh, question number two, can I trust the Bible? Can you trust the Bible? I ask Google a lot of things. You ever ask, I ask Google a lot of things, right? Uh, uh, and I ask Google, I ask Google to define reliable for me. And this is what she told me. It is a she. Somebody, somebody once told me, Google is a she. I said, how do you know that? She's like, because she knows everything. Reliable, it's an adjective. It means consistently good in quality or performance. Able to be trusted. Reliable source of information. Synonyms are dependable, good, well-founded, well-grounded, authentic, definitive, attested, valid, genuine, from the horse's mouth. Uh, sound, uh, sound, true, and uh, a person or thing that is trustworthy, has trustworthy qualities. Right? Do you know something or someone that's reliable? My favorite car, I've had many cars in the last whatever years since I've been driving. My favorite car was a 1999 Honda Accord LX 5-speed. Had 235,000 miles. I love this car. I don't even know why I loved it so much. I mean, the, the, the window didn't even go up all the way. I had to, like, hold it and, like, you know, push it like that, you know. Like, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? It smelled horrible inside, right? And if it rained or if there is even like a, a light fog, the, it, it, would, it would stall on me all the time. I found out later that it was a bad distributor cap, but it took me more than a year to figure that out, right? And so it was notoriously unreliable. And wherever I went, yo, if there was, if there was rain on the forecast for the next 10 days, it was a crapshoot. It was like, oh, am I going to, I don't know, right? But I knew my car. I knew my car. I knew just how to like, you know how, you know what I'm talking about? Like when you just hit it just right. You can't just start like that. You got to like, you know what I'm talking about? Who's with me here? Come on, right? Like I, I knew my car. I knew my car, right? I knew exactly what to do, right? If, 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 it, if it wouldn't start on me, I, I knew exactly how long to wait. Just give it 10 minutes, right? You know what I'm saying? Just say a quick prayer, then go, you know, like that. So I had some confidence for me to use it, right? Conditions are right. I was good. I was totally good. You know who did not share my confidence? Becky, my wife. She was violently opposed to using that vehicle, right? Why? Because she knew. She knew. She was the one that had to go get me whenever it stranded me on the highway, right? So I was good me using my car, but I was not confident letting Becky use the car. Right? I didn't have that confidence because I didn't think it was reliable for her. It was reliable for me, but, but not, not for her. She don't know how to use it. Yeah. It wasn't really the car. It was Becky. You know? it was Becky. It's Father's Day. You know? Oh, you guys are too much. Um, so here's the thing, that the scriptures are not like that. The scriptures are not reliable because they work for me if the conditions are right. right? They're reliable for me, but I'm not going to share it with you because I don't know if you know how to use it. Right? The, the scriptures are reliable because they're reliable because they're reliable. So how do we know, how do we know that the scriptures are reliable? I'm going to talk about two things. The scriptures that are reliable personally and historically. Personally 
and historically. They are, they are, the word here is profitable, right? It says that all scriptures are breathed out by God and it's profitable. And it's profitable. When it says it is breathed out by God, it means that, that it is breathed out by God's spirit. That word breathed is the word pneuma, which means spirit, wind, or breath, right? Like, that's what it means. And that word breathed out by God in the, in the Greek is actually one word. Breathe out by God. <laughs> Breathe out by God. Right? That's what it is, right? Or maybe it's this way. Right? Breathe out by God. That's what it is. So it means that, that God breathed it out. And what's that, what's that, what's that mean? That means that, that God's word was propelled forward by the spirit of God. Remember I said that it was written over a period of about a thousand years by 40 plus authors, right? While it was written by them by hand, right, they were propelled forward by the spirit of God empowering from Think about it this way. If you had a big sailboat, a big boat with huge sails, right? You would still need a crew, right? You still have a crew manning the rudders, the ropey things, and the pulleys, and all that stuff. I don't own a boat. You know what I'm saying? Like, you own a boat? I don't know. You just look like you own a boat. Like, like <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, 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 you know, but, but at the end of the day, they can do all these things, and the boat ain't going nowhere, Right? What that sailboat requires is the wind to catch, fill the sails, and propel it forward, right? And so, the, yeah, that's right. So it's the Spirit of God filling the sails, inspiring, empowering, and propelling those riders forward. And so that is, right? And so because of that, it is profitable. And that word profitable doesn't only mean that it adds value. It means that it is trustworthy, dependable that it is well-founded, that it is sound, all those things that Google said, right? That all those things. And so that, that's what it means, right? And so why is the spirit-propelled, empowered word of God not only adding value but good and profitable for my life? It is because it teaches me, it says, right? It is good for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, general things, but then also I love that word rebu- uh, re- reproofing. Reproofing means to convict and to correct without condemnation. Whew. To convict you means to, like, bring to light, like, you know, when you're like, uh-oh, I messed up, right? That's when you feel that conviction, but, and to correct you without condemnation, right? And the scriptures do that because they reveal to you things as they actually are. Not as I want them to be, but as they actually are. You ever wake up before everybody else wakes up in the house? You get dressed before anybody else wakes up, um, gets dressed? You did it all in the dark, right? You did it all in the dark. You go in the bathroom, turn the light, you're like, whoa, in the mirror. Why? Because the mirror reveals to you that you did it wrong, right? That you did it wrong, right? It just reveals to you what's actually there. It doesn't matter how you feel about your outfit. It tells you that you did it wrong. And so that's what correction, that's what we put reproving does, and scripture continually reveals to me who I am and who I am and, and, and what God thinks of me, right? And it's not condemnation. It is conviction and correction, but no condemnation. Is that good news? Right? And so when, I, when you look at the scriptures, and they're profitable not only for, for, for correcting you, but also it says for training in righteousness. So what's that mean? Training in righteousness. Righteousness means that when God looks at you, that you are right before him. That you are straight before him, not crooked before him, right? 
And so it's training you in righteousness primarily in two different ways. One is that it helps straighten you out when you're crooked, right? An orthodontist or an orthopedic, right? That means ortho means straight. They make things that are crooked straight, right? And so it trains you in righteousness by forming you into the way that God desired, that God intended. But then it also uh, um, uh, uh, trains you in righteousness by bringing you back into form when you fall out of shape, right? And, and it does that in you. When I was in high school, I had a very, very mild case of scoliosis. But it was enough that it laid me up for a couple of days. And I went to the doctor, did a bunch of scans, and he said, you know what you need to do? You need to do some squats. You need to do core work. And he was right. I hit the gym, and the pain went away. Why? Because the formative work strengthened me so that I could hold my own weight, right? Right? Now, if I break a bone, I need it to be set, right? I need it to be corrected and reset. Formative, corrected, right? That's what the, that's what the scriptures do. That's what the scriptures do. But it, it, that's one type of training in righteousness. But also training in righteousness is because it reveals who Jesus is ultimately, right? The scriptures constantly point to the coming Savior or point back to what Jesus has done and how we ought to respond and in, in, uh, how we ought to live in, re in response to that, right? So it is reliable because it's not what I want, it's what the scriptures say. And the scriptures never fall into any cultural box. In all of human history, the scriptures have never fit tidily into any cultural box, right? Every single culture, it will rub you the wrong way. It will rub you the wrong way. No matter what culture you're from, you'll be like, I don't like that. Why? Because it reveals you for who you actually are. Is that good news? That is good news. That is good news. But it's also um, historically reliable. The word is historically reliable. I like what Erwin Lutzer said. He said, religion, if it is worth believing, must be based on facts. Yes, there is room for faith. But unless it is faith in facts, faith is not only useless, but also destructive. Whew. The Bible is reliable because it is rooted in history. Not just because I feel a, a deep sense of connection to the scriptures, right? There's, there's, there's room and space for that. I, I think that it's, it's profitable to me that, that it moves me emotionally and spiritually, right? But if it's not actually rooted in history and in facts, right, how, how is it reliable for everyone and not just me because the present conditions are right, right? And so the scriptures are reliable and, um, historically. I'll just kind of give a, there's a bunch of different books that you can, that you can get on this, but but Erwin Lutzer's uh, Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible was really, really good. And it was super short. And you can get that. Probably should have had a slide, but moving on. Right? If you measure the Bible by the same standards that we measure, that we measure other historical ancient texts, let's say Plato, right? Plato's Republic, right? Plato's entire work, right? Plato's entire work. If you measure it by the same standard of authenticity and reliability, right? What you find out is that the Bible is varsity. And all these other ancient books, ancient writings, are, are, are Little League. Not even Little League. They're still in T-ball. They're still in T-ball. Here, check this out. Check this out. Just consider the sheer tonnage of manuscripts. There are approximately 250 available um, manuscripts of Plato's works. In, of Plato's works. In the Greek language alone, there are approximately 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, right? 
It doesn't even include all the Latin manuscripts or the tens of thousands of citations from the early followers of Jesus, right? Next, let's consider the time gap between the original manuscripts and the copies that we have today, right? Like the one they were first written, and then they get copied over until today because paper fades, right? Paper erodes, right? Uh, um, the earliest copies of Plato that we have are from around 895 AD. That's more than 1,200 years after Plato died, right? In contrast, we have portions of the New Testament showing up as early as 70 to 90 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And we have full manuscripts from as early as 240 A.D. There's no other significant ancient text that even comes close. You guys tracking with me? This doesn't even touch the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found in 47, 1947. They kind of just added to the credibility. They added to the credibility, right? And then lastly, you have apostolic approval. Apostolic approval simply means um, that the, the people who walked and talked and, wa- and, and rolled with Jesus gave approval to the writings of the New Testament. So all 27 books of the New Testament were either written by somebody that walked, talked, believed, and followed Jesus, or by somebody who was discipled by somebody who was with Jesus. That makes sense, right? And so all, all of the writings there had the stamp of approval. Stamp of approval. So, so I, I, I can tell you what Jay said yesterday because I was with him yesterday, right? Actually, I wasn't with you yesterday, but you get my point, right? You get my point, right? And so, but if, if, if I tell somebody else and they tell somebody else, the credibility starts to fade over time, right? All 27 books in the New Testament all have this credibility factor that after those, those people died, it was closed. You guys track it with me? Listen, the scriptures are reliable, not just personally, but historically. Is that good news? If you walk out of here right now, even if you don't have the warm fuzzies, at least you know what the Bible is and you know that you can trust it, right? But it's not enough to simply know what it is and that you can trust it. You need to read it. You need to read it. You need to, you need to hear God's word. Jesus says those who hear and apply, right? That, that, that information plus application equals transformation, right? Not just, okay, I know this stuff. Right? And so how do we actually read the scriptures? Uh, we, we teach a simple, I, I've been teaching this for, for years, and, and, but I learned it in 2008. I came to know Jesus in 1996, but I didn't learn this method of reading the Bible until 2008, right? Up until that point, this, this method called the SOAP method, um, I, I would open up my Bible to whatever it was, and I'd just keep reading, <laughs> or like just, you guys, anybody else do that? Right? Like, it's like, well, something sticks out. But I didn't really have the tools necessary to know how to read the scriptures consistently for life change. And so how do you do that? I want to teach you the SOAP method that I learned from a guy named Wayne Cordero, this pastor from Hawaii, that he was at a conference. I learned it. I was life-changing, and, and I've used it ever since. It's called the SOAP method. And it is simply uh, uh, um, scripture, observation, application, prayer. I'm just going to run right through it. Scripture. We're reading Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. You write that at the top of your paper, right? Maybe you write out the whole verse. Maybe you just write the address there. Observation. Observation is where it's at. It's where you actually see what's in the text. You actually use your eyeballs and ask simple questions like, what does it say? Not what I feel like it says. What did it actually say? You guys tracking? What it actually says. Jesus says that great will be the fall of it. 
That's what he actually said. So what's it say? And then the second question is, what's it mean? In light of what he said, what's it actually mean? What's it mean that, that Jesus says this? What's it mean for, for me? What's it mean for my, for my marriage? What's it mean for who God is, right? What's it mean for who I am, my identity? You guys with me here? And then lastly, why does it matter? Why does it actually matter? Okay, it says this, it means that. Why does that even matter? Why does that even matter? I tell you, in my life, um, reading and understanding the scriptures from life change has significantly impacted, most significantly, my marriage. My marriage. Because I can read the scriptures, make Jesus into whoever I want him to be, right? And, and it's good for me. <laughs> it's good for me. But it doesn't have actual life change and affect how I actually live with my, with my wife. But you know what the scriptures taught me? That Jesus didn't just die for me, he also died for Becky. And we were in this pattern where, where wherever we would sin against each other, whether it was real or perceived, it didn't matter. Married couples, can I get an amen? Right? It don't matter if she actually sinned against me. I thought she did. Right? I thought she did. Right? And so when she sins against me, right, I was good when I, when I sinned. Okay, Jesus died for my sin. But I didn't really believe that he died for her sin. You guys tracking? Right? Then and, and just through reading and understanding the scriptures, that Jesus didn't just die for my sin, he died for hers. And so then we started applying the gospel to each other. And we started saying things like this. And just, just to clarify, I was mostly the sinner, not her, right? Not her. Uh, and so when we would have this conflict, we started having these awkward and weird conversations that would be like, you know, what you did was wrong. It hurt me. This is how it hurt me. But I forgive you because Jesus died for that, right? Kind of awkward, kind of uncomfortable. But you know what? It had dramatic, radical, life-changing effects on our marriage, on our marriage. And where did that come from? Because we were just reading the scriptures, just reading the scriptures. What to say, what's it mean, why does it matter? And then that's the O, and then you have to actually apply what it says. So what are you going to actually do about it? I'm going to ask Becky for forgiveness. I, I, I'm going to have to learn something more. I'm going to have to confess my sin to God. I'm going to rejoice because God is near, right? What are you actually going to do in response and in light of God's word? And then lastly, you pray. You simply pray. You have a personal conversation with your heavenly father. And you say, Lord, thank you so much for your word. This is what your word says. You have a conversation meaning that you don't just keep talking. You actually listen to him, right? You actually listen to him. And then you just land the plane by thanking him. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. And then you go, go and live your life and do exactly what he told you to do. And so why, why does this matter? This matters for, for, for me and for you is because I'm not the only one who could turn Jesus into whoever I want him to be. So can you. And if you do that, Jesus will be friendly but not fierce. You'll turn him into a distant relative who you might love, but he won't have any real significant impact in your life. You'll turn Jesus into a political activist and a champion of whatever cause you feel strongly about in the moment. You'll turn Jesus into whoever you want. But Jesus of the scriptures is the conqueror who conquered every foe that I could not. Jesus who's compassionate yet mighty. Jesus who is bold yet humble. Jesus who is my king yet came as a peasant. And the Jesus who changed me when I was 17 and is still changing me today. Is that good news? Jesus, thank you so much for your word. 
Thank you that, that you redeem and you save and you create by the power of your word. And God, I just want to ask that you would empower each of us to walk out of here, not simply like, oh, that was some good information, but that we would walk out of here equipped to actually um, apply what we've heard, to build our life on solid rock, to build our life on your word. Jesus, would you give us that, that grace and that power today? We thank you. In Jesus' great name, we've got the Son. Amen, amen. amen.